Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from, there was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. January 1969, Cleveland, Ohio, six years old. I never meant to set the house on fire. It was an accident. I was playing alone in the closet with paper dolls and a candlestick. The paper dolls came in a thin box and wore clothing from the Victoria era. The candle was slender and white and sat tightly in the candlestick holder. My Victorian paper ladies looked like they belonged in my favorite soap opera, Dark Shadows. I watched it every day with my mother while she ironed clothes and talked on the phone. The show was filmed in black and white, and the main character was a vampire. He was spooky and seductive and always wore a cape. The single flame of my candle created the atmosphere and the ambiance that swirled around the leading man, Barnabas Collins. The closet was small, but so was I. I was only six years old. It was January, and I sat huddled around the candle wearing a brand-new pajama outfit that my father had given me for Christmas. The clothes that hung in the closet brushed against my head, creating ghostly shadows and silhouettes that danced around the flame. The fire started slowly. A flicker caught a thread and then began to glow. I wasn't sure if I could handle it by myself, so I called with a quiet urgency to my sister Kathy to come help. The last thing in the world that I wanted to do was to bother my mother. Kathy and I ran back and forth from the bathroom, pouring water on the intensifying flames with little Dixie cups. The water seemed to encourage the flames as they became noisy and bold, popping, snapping, and advancing forward. Three cans of oil-based house paint were on a shelf in the closet, and they turned what I thought a manageable affair into a combustible nightmare. Within seconds, the bedroom exploded into a brilliant inferno, and the closet doorway looked like the mouth of an angry dragon spitting out fireballs, roaring hysterically at the child who would dare to awaken him. Kathy and I could barely scream, we were so afraid. The scene in our bedroom had become surreal, and the colors of the fire were so alive and imposing that it was hard to believe that it wasn't all a dream. While the Cleveland Fire Department doused the flames that gutted our home and destroyed all our Christmas presents, my family and the tenants who lived in the apartment below us took refuge in the next-door neighbor's house. We all sat on her fancy furniture, which was beige and white and covered in plastic. On the coffee table was a bowl of hard peanut-shaped candies that I knew were filled with a peanut butter cream. I couldn't think about the fire because all I wanted was a piece of that candy. I didn't dare grab one without permission or even ask for one. I was pretty sure everyone was mad at me, and I probably didn't deserve the candy anyway. But the neighbor lady must have known. She must have seen the look in my eye because she offered me one of the peanuts without consulting my mother first. The candy was very good, and for one second, I didn't feel like the bad little girl that I knew I was. As we sat there crinkling the plastic that covered the couch, 
I watched my mother intently, trying to gauge how severe my punishment would be. Considering what I had just done, I knew I was in for it. But she was strangely subdued and uncharacteristically kind to me. I assumed she was on her best behavior in front of the neighbors, or maybe she was just trying to impress her new boyfriend, Paul, who was having his first sleepover on this, the night of the fire. But knowing my mother's temper, which was sparked by the most obscure offenses, I stayed on high alert for some time afterwards. Oddly enough, I was never punished. It wasn't a mansion or even a fancy apartment that I burned down. It was a shabby one and a half bedroom where I lived with my single mom and my three younger siblings, Kathy, Tony, and Lisa. I was the oldest. Kathy and I were Irish twins, as they used to call it. We were the same age for two months out of every year. Our dad, Jim, worked as a drill press operator for the Cleveland Steel Corporation. He was a good-looking man in a rough-and-tumble sort of way, his body sinewy and coiled as if on alert and ready for a fight. He had green eyes and the words love and hate were tattooed on his knuckles, carved out in that bluish color of jailhouse ink. He rolled his cigarettes up in the cuffs of his starched white t-shirts, always ironed and tucked into his trousers. He drove fast cars, loved music, and hated his kids. He truly was a cad who bounced in and out of our, at that point, very short lives, but I was smitten with him nonetheless. He hated our mother, obvious by the beatings she got, but he couldn't always resist her. She was an Italian working-class beauty who embodied a dark and intriguing charm, like the blue rays that reflected off her jet-black hair. She manipulated men somehow, maybe sexually, I don't know. I was too young to understand. But I could tell she had a quality that attracted as well as repelled. Her friends seemed to do for her out of a sense of obligation and a hoping that something would be returned, something that never was. Certain pathetic men kept trying, which must have made my father seem all the more attractive because he put up a fight. And so the story of my parents' courtship goes. Diana chased, Jim ran, and Diana won. Her powerful personality forced its way into his life, one child at a time. A brief recall of our fledgling, then failing family before the fire. I was there first and I didn't make it easy for them. I was born breech and with a birth defect on August 27, 1962. I came out of my mother's womb and the back of my heels touching the back of my head. I was literally born bent out of shape and I can't imagine who hurt worse, my mother or me. The only way to uncurl a backwards balled up baby is with traction and so for the first three months of my life, I levitated slightly above a hospital bed, attached to harnesses, slings, weights, and wires. As soon as my body aligned itself into a more normal human shape, I was prepped for a surgery that would break my leg bones in a curious effort to fix my deformed knees. On November 29, 1962, at the age of three months, I was wheeled into the recovery room and outfitted in a cast that ran from the lower edge of my rib cage down to just above my knees. 
The cast had a hole in the middle, and there was no guarantee that once it came off, I would be able to walk. But my parents didn't have time to think about that because their second child, Kathleen, was born 11 months after me, premature and barely alive. She spent the first months of her life living in a plastic bubble, and when she finally made it home, she refused to eat. Maybe she didn't know how, or maybe she just didn't want to. Whatever the case, it became a constant battle with her, and she teetered on the twine between life and death for many years. An already unstable union, Jim and Diana had one lame and one starving child to contend with when the next, Tony, came quickly and with ease, but was born with a dark shadow on his personality. You could see it in his eyes. He looked like he'd seen the devil or a preview of his brand new parents on the way out of the womb, and for that he would pay, with his life or his sanity. The fourth child, Lisa, was conceived during one of my parents' many separations, and my father never believed her to be his own. Before the final separation, the one that moved us into the one-and-a-half-bedroom apartment that I later destroyed, we lived as a family. Not a very good family, but a family nonetheless typical of working-class America. When my father was around, he and Diana were in a constant battle for king or queen of the castle. They were both worthy because they were both powerful and ferocious, but they weren't consistent. Their desire for a family life was based purely on mood and ego, and it came and went as frequently as the smoke from their cigarettes. Being the oldest and the bossiest, I tried to establish myself as the leader of my siblings, but they were a stubborn and willful as my parents, and in the end, we just became a family in battle with honestly no hope for peace. In those days, Jim's presence was so infrequent that I never knew if my parents were officially married. When he was around, he had two moods, stoic and explosive. He wasn't smiley or talkative. He was a tough guy with demons, and he would sit in his favorite tattered armchair, listening to music, while one hand held a can of beer and the other a cigarette. He would focus his gaze on some crack in the horsehair plastered wall, shifting only to slap my hand away from eating the cigarette butts out of his ashtray. The chair, which I remember to be a worn brownish-orange plaid, sat with its back against the wall right next to the front door. The record player sat opposite my father, and from there he could listen, catch a breeze, and keep an eye on his most beloved possession, his hot rod car. He was doing just that one day while the summer bugs banged gently against the screen door, and the lulling voices of the Righteous Brothers added an extra layer of thickness to the hot, sultry air. It was just me and my dad at home, and I was in the dining room playing with our dog, Duchess a temperamental female with long white hair and a look of uncertainty in her eyes. At some point in our entanglement of fun, I must have rolled over on her tail because she let out a screeching, high-pitched, overly dramatic yelp and ran away from me like I had just beaten her. It was only seconds before I could hear my dad come storming through the house looking for me. The dining room had white French doors which seemed far too frilly and delicate to open up to a man as angry as my father, but they did, and he came walking in like unrelenting hard blue steel 
with his fists clenched and his eyes narrowed. He was scary when he was mad and even when he wasn't. I could feel the dread bubble up inside of me, which made my lips begin to quiver. I stammered out the truth as best as I knew it. It was an accident. I didn't mean to hurt Duchess. We were just playing. But my dad didn't care. He'd blown a fuse. He grabbed me by my ankles and carried me upside down, head hanging and filling with blood, all the way down the hallway to my bedroom. And then with the force of a man who just doesn't give a damn, he swung my body against the wall, which it hit with a thud and then landed with a bounce onto my bed. He never said a word. He just slammed the door and left. I was about five years old when this happened and barely out of my cast. I was walking, but my knees weren't normal. They would only bend to a 90-degree angle and looked irregular due to their square shape. I thought he should be more careful with my legs, and I couldn't believe my father would take such a chance. I sat on my bed for hours, not moving a muscle. I was scared, but mostly confused. My father was mostly mean to my mother and not that much to me. I always thought that I was his favorite because I was the only one who looked like him. I tried to figure out what happened and why, even though I knew it was the stupid dog's fault. The house was crazily still after that. Nothing moved, and I didn't hear a sound. I wanted so badly to hear the Righteous Brothers singing again, but there was nothing. The only thing that moved was the sun. And as the eerie shadows of late afternoon were cast onto my bedroom, the gloominess of it all made me feel even worse. I waited for my mom to come in and check on me, but she never did. She wasn't that kind of a mother. <laughs>